0: By the time my daughters are my age, over a hundred million people in the United States alone are gonna be experiencing extremely dangerous heat. We've already started to experience it. And periods of high heat and humidity because of climate change are only going to get more frequent and more intense over the next 30 years. I'm Dr. Neha Bartek and you're listening to Health Discovered. Today, Dr. Ali J, professor of heat and health at the University of Sydney, is going to help us unpack what heat does to our bodies, how it harms us, but most importantly, sustainable ways that we can use to stay cool when the temperatures rise. He is doing amazing work that is going to be critical for us as the director of the Heat and Health Research Incubator at the University of Sydney. That's where he gets to simulate a whole bunch of different heat wave conditions and see the effects on the human body.
1: My name is uh, Professor Ollie Jay, and I am uh, director of the Heat and Health Research Incubator in the Faculty of Medicine and Health at the University of Sydney in Australia.
0: Great. And while we're talking, is it okay if I call you Ollie?
1: Of course, yeah. yeah, 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 that's the, yeah the formalities are definitely not necessary, yeah, but <laughs> thank you for checking.
0: Okay, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us because um, as you are probably experiencing, and we certainly are here in Atlanta, and millions of Americans, millions of Europeans are experiencing the heat so, I would love to hear from you as a climate scientist and physiologist about what we know about how our bodies handle the heat. What are we supposed to be doing when it gets hot?
1: Sure. yeah. So <clears throat> there's a variety of things that are that are going on in the in the human body. and um, some of them might be a, a a bit of a surprise to to some of your listeners because I think, Traditionally, it's tempting to to, to to think that the main problem is, is uh, overheating leading to uh, heat stroke. And that is one of the mechanisms, of course, by which people get sick and ultimately potentially even die during extreme heat events. But um, it's actually not the, the main cause of mortality and morbidity during heat waves. So um, I'll break it down into mainly three different pathways through which people predominantly... Um, get sick during extreme heat exposure. So we'll start off with that first one, which is the obvious one, heat stroke. Um, So the main mechanism uh, is, uh, it comes down to the fact that we we redistribute blood around the body when we get hot. So we have this process called um, a cutaneous vasodilation, where um, the blood vessels in our skin open up and we redirect a lot of blood away from the body core towards the skin, to try to help support heat dissipation to the surrounding environment. Now, um, as a consequence of that, because we've only got so much blood inside the body, um, we would, if we didn't have any other compensatory response, we would have a a reduction in in blood pressure, which would lead to things like syncope, et cetera. So in order to try to defend against that, uh, what we need to do is elevate our cardiac output, so the amount of blood that we pump around the body every minute. And um, the main way in which we achieve this because um, our stroke volume, so the amount of blood that we, we shift with every beat of the heart, uh, remains the same, maybe a little lower, is through upregulating our heart rate. And of course, if we are asking our heart rate to beat more times per minute, this requires the, the cardiac myocytes, so the, 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 um, the muscle cells of the heart, to contract um, more often uh, every minute, and that requires oxygen. So if there's a limitation to the delivery of oxygen via the bloodstream through the coronary arteries, for example, um, and we have maybe um, an issue with that supply through coronary artery disease, for example, that could lead to a catastrophic cardiovascular event. Um, So this is probably why we see, we think from a physiological perspective, why we see a greater number of people with cardiovascular disease um, falling ill or dying during extreme heat events—it's not necessarily because they overheat; their core, their core temperature necessarily go, goes much higher. But we have this kind of um, this, this cardiovascular failure, so that's different from heat stroke.
0: That's a great point. So I'm so I think that's so important for us to all realize is that when we think the temperature is getting too hot for us, we think we are going to overheat, um, and that's the main way that people get sick from heat. But what you're pointing out is really that when we we are kind of set to live at this Goldilocks temperature, we work hard to stay in that range. And whether it's too hot or too cold, our body has to work to to deal with that to keep us there.
1: That's exactly right. That's- so what, yeah, so what we're seeing with cardiovascular with the with the signal that we see in in people with cardiovascular disease falling ill during extreme heat events is that it's it's we think it's more of a function of the way in which we try to defend body temperature autonomically through our basic thermoregulatory processes that then elicit different types of strain. And in this case, it's eliciting excess cardiovascular strain. And if there's an underlying infirmity of the cardiovascular apparatus, then that becomes problematic. But this is not to be confused, of course, with heat stroke. So if I then go on to the, the, the next component, is people really, really overheating with heat stroke. So it, it comes from the same underlying process that we have this redistribution of blood towards the skin. And then the, the secondary effect of that is that we have a reduced blood flow to the gut. So if we have a reduced blood flow to the gut, you have a reduced uh, delivery of oxygen to the epithelial layers of the gut. And when that's coupled with, with high local tissue temperatures, what uh, physiological studies have demonstrated is that we start getting, uh, seeing an increase in gut permeability. So things like endotoxins, which are residing inside the gut, which are meant to stay in there. When we have this this, this, um, reduction in blood flow, because we're very hot and we're trying to defend against body temperature, and we have increase in local tissue temperature, these endotoxins start uh, leaking out of the gut. They enter the circulation, and that might then set off a cascade of uh, effects, which ultimately may lead to um, coagulation um, around the body, um, multiple organ failure, and ultimately death. So that is actually, that's what heat stroke is. And that's really uh, two things. It's, again, this, this redistribute of the blood flow. There's also the very high tissue temperatures that we see in, in, in the gut.
0: I, you know, I think this is so important because even having gone to medical school, I don't think, we're, you know, really taught to think about heat stroke at certain temperatures, people come in, and we're really taught about what you should do, what we need to do to sort of reverse damage, to protect the life. But when you, we, I don't think I ever really knew the gut heat connection, you know? And I think the last time we talked, that struck me so much in terms of what we're thinking about when we're thinking about the dangers to human health for sure, I think for so many people, is heat strokes. I think, number one, you pointed out, actually, it's sort of heat strain turning into heart strain, which is putting a lot of extra work on our heart. So for a lot of folks out there who have heart disease, um, particularly heart disease where we have blocked arteries going to the heart, um, that that strain can just really cause harm and cause more people to go to the hospital and more heart-related death. And then the second piece, I just find like, you know, we always think about our guts now and our mental health. We think about our gut linked with so many other processes. And I think that it's really important for us to realize how when we're sending blood to our skin to help us cool down, that core part of our body is actually overheating and then breaking down and all of that, like you mentioned, the endotoxins that are meant to stay in that, you know, they're not supposed to come into our blood, our blood system. And then they do. And then that's what sets off this whole cascade of heat strokes. So like, I, I just never knew that.
1: Yeah. And to be fair, a lot of this evidence has been generated by, by uh, physiologists who, who specialize in this particular area. And, uh, and a lot of these findings are, are relatively new, in, you know, in the last decade or so. And um, so uh, w- I had the good fortune of, of, um, of uh, being invited to be a co-author on a recent uh, review article in Nature, uh, Nature Reviews Disease Primers that was um, uh, led by um, Rezak uh, Bouchama, who is a, a world-leading expert in, in heat stroke Alongside um, uh, my colleague uh, Lisa Leon, who's based in the United States, and, uh, and, and other co authors as well. And uh, that review paper really nicely um, breaks down all of these kind of physiological uh, components. But because um, Rezak is, a, is, is a, a physician as well, it, it's nicely written because it provides it from the, the perspective of, 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 of practicing physicians which I think is a really important component. And we talk in that review article about the difference between classic heat stroke and exertional heat stroke as well, and the different types of people that are, are, are um, vulnerable to those types of, of, of versions of heat stroke. Even though the underlying mechanisms are ultimately very similar, uh, the pathways are quite different, and therefore different people are, are um, vulnerable to it.
0: So I would love to talk about that. I think that's a key point because we think about people being vulnerable to the heat. And so a lot of people think, well, I'm not vulnerable because I have air conditioning or I'm not vulnerable because I'm young and I don't have any underlying health conditions. So let's break that down a little bit.
1: Yeah, definitely. So um, the best way to think about the vulnerability to the heat is that we have a certain um, heat exposure, let's say. And we have a a combined adaptive capacity to cope with that heat stress. And we can break down that adaptive capacity into two primary components. There's the physiological adaptive capacity and then the behavioral adaptive capacity. So if we think about the physiological behavioral, uh, sorry, the physiological adaptive capacity to start off with, that's like our, what our thermoregulatory function is like, whether there's any impairments to our ability to sweat. We haven't talked about sweating yet, and that's something we should get onto a little later on, because yeah. it's very important. Um, uh, so so th- things, things like that. So that's the, 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 uh, the physiological capacity to cope with, 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 with heat stress. There's also the cardiovascular and renal components of that, um, which we've touched on already. And then the behavioral capacity really kind of focuses on the type of um, uh, uh, adaptive behavior that we can engage in. And that may be something as simple as turning on an air conditioning unit. And one thing that we do know from the the excellent data that's been collected by epidemiologists in this area is that people who are a much greater risk of heat-related illness during heat waves typically don't have access to air conditioning or in slightly fewer cases, they may have access to it, but they don't want to use it because they're worried about the costs. And then those things get inflated quite substantially when we have things like electricity blackouts, so interruptions to power, because everybody's turning their air conditioning units on, on at once, and consequently the, the frail inf- uh, energy infrastructure can't deal with it, and therefore we have disruptions to power, so that becomes problematic as well. Um, and then if we think about people who don't have access to air conditioning, there are sub-components of vulnerability within that group of that group of people um, so people who are confined to bed for example people um, who might have disabilities uh, who are immobile people who are socially isolated all of these things are additional risk factors because they impair our ability to adaptively uh, sorry, uh, behaviorally adapt to, uh, to to a hot environment which essentially means trying to take action to um, reduce the the heat stimulus. Um, through 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 uh, differences in, in behavior, they may be personal cooling strategies. They may be seeking out a, a col- an air conditioned space if you don't have air conditioning in your own uh, home, um, etc. So that's really how we kind of break it down.
0: Yeah, I think that is a really so interesting because it. So one, we're thinking about exposure. So as temperatures rise and your papers, you you had a set of papers in The Lancet with your colleagues um, that are really sort of looking at what happens to our bodies and the fact that we've had so many reports at this point that show that if we continue the way we're going, we're just going to see more, more intense heat, longer periods of heat. Um, And so if we continue down that path, one, there's a higher risk that we're going to be exposed to this high level of heat, regardless of who we are. And then We kind of have this sort of like we're kind of balancing what we internally can manage ourselves with, like you mentioned, our physiology and then what we can manage because of external factors like just our ability to get out of the heat and that's not equal for everybody. And I want you to know that you can cut me off and tell me that I'm wrong at any moment. I, <laughs> oh, I love
1: oh, that. I'm just absolutely agreeing with everything you're saying right now. Yeah. Um, and I think one thing that is really important to emphasize is that a lot of people often think about extreme heat and go, well, you know, how much of a big deal is it? You know, we've got air, just said the air conditioning on, and you hear that from a lot of people. But I think what's really important for for, for, for us all to understand is that the people who are most vulnerable don't have access to those type of strategies. Um, if, if people are living with poverty, for example, that's a huge risk factor when it comes to being able to, to, to take the appropriate action to uh, avoid the, uh, the worst of, of, of heat exposure due to this, this massive reduction in the behavioral adaptive capacity of people. And, um, and another thing that we also have been working on quite extensively is really trying to find ways in which we can identify the optimal strategies that people living in low resource environments can adopt in order to safely navigate their way through extreme heat events. That's one thing. And the other thing is, is even from the perspective of air conditioning use, is that what we do know is that at the moment, at least the way that they're built, is that they, gen- they, they use quite a lot of electricity, And if you use a lot of electricity in most places, um, so so I live here in Australia, and um, the vast majority of electricity that is is generated here is generated by coal-fired power plants. And of course, um, they're burning fossil fuels, they're emitting excess CO2, which then contribute to the problem in the future as well. So it's ensuring that while we're trying to increase people's adaptive capacity from a behavioral perspective, um, particularly if they're not as physiologically vulnerable, is that we find um, strategies that they can use that are not um, contributing to the problem down the road. Now, if you have very low behavioral capacity and very low physiological um, adaptive capacity, then I think the the, the environmental concerns are secondary at the moment. The main thing is making sure that the most vulnerable can get their way through through heat waves now. Um, And so if air conditioning is is a solution for, for that portion of the population, Then, um, then, then, so be it. And I think that's we know that it's very protective. At the same time, we need to find sustainable strategies, uh, particularly for people who don't have access to to those types of um, that type of cool.
0: Yeah, I think that it's so interesting because you kind of always think about. And I'm glad you mentioned that you're in Australia. I wanted to talk about that. So I'm in Atlanta, Georgia, which is called Hotlanta because historically we have periods of high and intense heat. So a lot of us have, you know, there's a lot of air conditioning around. We, we have it. And so we sometimes take it for granted. And I will tell you that about a week ago, we had a storm because none of this comes just in and of its, it's not just a heat wave. It's also, you know, drought or power, you know, going out or storms or so we had a storm and our power went out. And we have not had air conditioning um, for about I want to say five days now. And I've got a two-year-old, I've got an 86-year-old dad at home, and I've got kids and a, you know a husband on the side. So we don't <laughs> worry too much about him. But <laughs> okay, so so there, yeah, that's right. So there's one floor where the air conditioning unit. Is still functioning, and then the other two that that are not. So again, we you were kind of like in the space where we have taken it for granted, and now I'm like, which of these people get to stay in the area um, that that is cooler? Mm-hmm. And so my dad won, and so he gets to stay in the cooler area. <laughs> I mean,
1: and I think that's uh, that sounds like a wise decision. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because what we do know as well is that as. He, even generally, you know, relatively healthy people, as we age, is that there are age-related decrements in the ability to regulate body temperature, and that's predominantly through the ability to sweat. So, um, mm. beyond the ages of sixty, what we start seeing is um, a, a reduced sensitivity of um, of the sweat glands to the, the neurotransmitter that is responsible for sweating, so acetylcholine. Um, studies have shown that that uh, that peripheral sensitivity to to, to that uh, stimulus to produce sweat um, is it becomes blunted uh, as, as we age and it seems it's pretty non-linear so once we get to hmm. 60 it really starts to t- take hold so by the time we get to our mid 80s um, uh, the, the the age-related decrements to sweating will be quite substantial now those can be offset by things like it you know, keeps staying in shape and, and, and maintaining physical fitness and things like that um, uh, but but that's, that's, that's one of the reasons why even primary aging is a, is a risk factor um, uh, from the perspective uh-huh. of, of extreme heat exposure.
0: And so you mentioned sweating. So let's get into sweating because that's just such an important mechanism.
1: Uh, well, it's, 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 uh, in fact, it's the only mechanism that works when we're exposed to extreme heat. So th- the ways in which we exchange heat with the surrounding environment is through two main pa- pathways that we can group together. There are dry heat transfer pathways, which are driven by temperature differences between the skin and the surrounding environment. And even when we're fully vasodilated, so that that, um, increase in blood flow response that I mentioned at the start of our conversation, even if we have a maximal response of that, our skin temperature will max out around about 35 degrees Celsius. So, um, so what that, what's that in Fahrenheit? Ninety-five Fahrenheit. I think. Oh my god! Sorry. Yeah,
0: that's about ninety-five. <laughs> I was about to do my get out, my... Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh,
1: have to remember the audience that I'm speaking to here. Um, so, uh, so if, if if ambient temperature exceeds that skin temperature, our ability to lose heat via those dry heat transfer pathways, so radiation, convection, they are actually they end up being reversed. So we actually start gaining heat via those pathways. Plus we're generating heat inside our body because we're alive and our our cells are using energy and and, and, and heat is, is generated as a byproduct of cellular metabolism. And that gets upregulated quite substantially when we start moving around because large muscle groups will be contracting and that generates lots of heat as well. So that leaves only one pathway left to actually lose heat to the environment and that's the pathway of evaporation. So that is why we have evolved to to, to be quite good at sweating because our sweat glands will produce sweat. It will sit on the skin surface and it's the evaporation that helps us cool down. It's not the production of sweat that cools us at all. It's the evaporation of the sweat. And that's the the driving force for that evaporation of sweat is um, dictated by a couple of things. The main thing is the humidity difference between the skin and the air. So we've got high skin humidity because we're sweating, so it's wet. Um, but if the air has a lot of moisture in it, that means that the, that, that driving force for, for the evaporation of sweat from our skin gets suppressed. And that's why when we have a warm environment that's above 35 degrees Celsius, 95 degrees Fahrenheit, and if it's humid, that's why it becomes so uncomfortable and such a problem. Because the only way in which we can cool ourselves is through evaporation, yet that sweat can't evaporate. So there's a couple of things that we can do. We can start increasing airflow across the skin surface to try to promote the evaporation sweat um the thing is then you've kind of got the competing effects of adding extra convective heat to the body and that how that balances with extra evaporation but um uh we've done some physio- several physiological studies demonstrating that and things like electric fans for example are, that are much cheaper and cleaner to, to to operate relative to air conditioning they can be used quite safely up to um you know at least hundred degrees Fahrenheit maybe a little higher than that, especially if it's humid um, uh, and and that kind of goes against actually a lot of the public health guidance that's out there from organizations such as the Centre for Disease Control, the World Health Organization. so we we're, we're we're trying to urge those 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 um, those organizations to reconsider um, the guidance around things like f- the use of fans during heat waves because they really offer the most vulnerable, quite an accessible and easy to use solution that they're currently being told not to use. Um, And I don't
0: want to sort of knock you off your train of thought, but I think that's really important for people that are out there who are sort of, that we've heard that there's certain, there's a threshold beyond which we should not be using fans because they can be dangerous. So I think the key point here is that above, you know, around 100 degrees Fahrenheit, a fan, especially if it's really humid, a fan is actually going to be really potentially helpful.
1: Uh, yeah, and we've demonstrated that qu- qu- quite um, uh, repeated, well, repeatedly in different studies. Um, so we've demonstrated that to 39, 40 degrees Celsius, so that's about 102 to 104 Fahrenheit. I did my, uh, my homework on my Fahrenheit scale. Yeah,
0: thank it. you. Thank <laughs> you for doing um,
1: that. <laughs> yeah, we show that you know, with, with, with high humidity environments, the fans do just, uh, a- again, o- always prove beneficial. They keep core temperature lower, they reduce the cardiovascular strain, which is really important. The only trade-off is that it does uh, increase your sweat rates a little bit more. So if you don't replace those fluids with extra water, then it will accelerate dehydration. And we haven't talked about dehydration yet. And it's something that we should um, touch on a little later on. Um, but as long as you're using those those devices and you're, you're drinking um, uh, uh, an extra glass of water every hour or two, should be should be enough to ensure that the dehydration doesn't get aggravated by these devices. Now, with this said, what we do know is that, from our studies, is that once temperature goes much higher, particularly if it's very dry, so I'm thinking of environments like in the United States uh, Southwest, for example, where it can be very hot and arid. um, What we do know is under those circumstances, fans are, are detrimental. And we've seen quite dramatic responses uh, demonstrating that um, aggravation of cardiovascular strain, aggravation of a, a greater rate of heating um, when using these fans relative to not using these fans. But that's under conditions where it's kind of forty-five degrees Celsius. So that's about 110, 112 Fahrenheit, maybe a little higher than that, and very dry, so less than ten percent relative humidity. And under those situations, what's happening is is you're, you're blowing hot air on the person. Uh, it doesn't accelerate evaporation because all the sweat evaporates anyway because it's so dry. So that driving force for evaporation right. is really quick, but you're still adding the extra heat to the body. So it's kind of this trade-off between temperature and humidity. Um,
0: and that's where people kind of talk about the convection oven, where you're sort of like heating yourself with that's exactly the right. yeah. high heat.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, I, and I think that's probably where the initial guidance came from. Um, uh, it was, it, it's, it's, it's this. Um, uh, analogy of 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 being in a in a convective oven, but I think it's really important to recognise that that human sweat, as opposed to a turkey in an oven that just sits there and cooks, human sweat, and you can accelerate the evaporation of that sweat with extra airflow. So we need to take that into account when we're thinking about uh, recommending these um, these different strategies.
0: Wow, that is really helpful. And I'd love to talk about dehydration, because I think that's a, another thing where a lot of people will say, well, if you just keep drinking water, you'll be fine. It doesn't matter what what's going on. So talk us through dehydration and yeah. how you recommend sort of thinking about it.
1: Sure. Yeah. So well, dehydration is obviously an important component. And um, I'll just describe maybe uh, first how dehydration impacts the body. So I've described two pathways with which people can get quite sick um, when they're exposed to extreme heat, the cardiovascular strain component and then the heat strain component. And, and both of those can get aggravated if we are chronically dehydrated. Um, in both cases, it's due to the fact that if we're losing body water and we're not replacing it, um, not just through drinking, but also absorbing that uh, that extra water that we're drinking, which is an important consideration, is uh, is we have a shrinking uh, a, a reduction in our blood volume. So if you're reducing that blood volume, that puts more strain on the heart to move a fixed amount of, um, of blood around the body every minute, of course, because stroke volume goes down with the reduction in, in blood volume. And um, it makes that, uh, it makes that, that, um, that vasodilatory response uh, more difficult as well, so it can aggravate um, heat stroke as well. So, um, and then the other way in which dehydration can chronically affect human health during extreme heat exposure is also through its impact on the kidneys as well. So one of the signals that we see in the epidemiological literature is an increase in, uh, or a greater risk of negative health outcomes in people with renal disease. And um, we think that is due to, um, if we have chronic dehydration, then that will increase renal strain and that can increase the risk of chronic kidney disease, particularly if people are exposed to heat stress in a, a, a repeated way. So, um, there's some pretty decent evidence that's coming out demonstrating early onset cr- chronic kidney disease and ascribing that to uh, multi day heat exposure, particularly in settings where people don't have access to clean water. So, they're, they're, they're chronically dehydrated every day at work. They then don't fully rehydrate when they go home. They then start work dehydrated the next day. And then it's just this cumulative aggravation. And if that keeps on happening, then that can lead to these repeated insults on the kidney. Which, which ultimately impair kidney function and then can lead to chronic kidney disease. Now, in those settings, though, those studies haven't quite been able to uncouple the heat effect alone and the dehydration effect alone relative to other factors that might be in, the, in that environment. But I think it's, um, uh, it's pretty plausible to, to, to consider the impact of dehydration on renal function as well.
0: So I think, again, this kind of gets back to vulnerability. So one is if you already have some condition like diabetes where your kidneys are already affected in some way. So that puts you at higher risk with heat just if you become dehydrated and you're not sort of maintaining your hydration status. So you're we're, we're starting with a hit. Yeah. Um, And adding the hit of heat. And then heat itself for a young, healthy person who's an outdoor worker or somebody who's outside very frequently, like you're talking about, where you're not thinking I'm vulnerable because you think you're young and you don't have any known history of any problems. But the heat itself over a long period of time, in addition to potentially other things you're exposed to, pesticides, you know, other things that may be around – are also kind of putting a hit on your kidneys and then you kind of get into the cycle of dehydration and more heat and dehydration and, and and that causing problems over the long run.
1: That's exactly right. Yeah. And another thing to to also consider as well is just thinking about young, healthy other, you know, young, healthy people who um, uh, might end up being at risk of the negative health effects of extreme heat. It's really where we start thinking about exertional heat stroke. So, um, this is, this is the, the, the time that we're actually having this discussion is, is um, really relevant to this particular question you know as um, as colleges and, and high schools around the United States start having their um, their summer training camps for, for things like American football there's um, some great work that's been done at the University of Connecticut led by dr. Uh, Doug Kasser, um, and he leads up the uh, Cory Stringer Institute and um, they've done a lot of work around trying to create awareness around the risk of exertional heat illness, particularly in young athletes, particularly at this time of year, and then trying to really advocate for the, um, the most effective um, uh, responses to try to treat exertional heat illness or heat stroke victims to ensure that they actually don't end up um, uh, uh, dying from, from that particular condition. Um, so in that particular case, you don't have a, an individual who has underlying infirmities. They don't have underlying... Um, uh, re- uh, reduction in their thermoregulatory function, but the exposure is so excessive that it ends up being a problem. So, um, if we take the case of American football, which I think is a, a, a very relevant case, is that you've got a bunch of guys who are uh, being very competitive. They're trying to you know, make the make the make the cut to make the team. So they have got high levels of motivation. So that behavioral capacity is probably reduced a little bit because they don't want to listen mm-hmm. to what their body's telling them. So they will keep pushing and mm-hmm. pushing. There's also the, the cultural aspect around it. Um, want to be the tough guy, uh, all, all that kind of thing. That can play into uh, the issue. And then, of course, their, being, their, their, their exertion levels are very, very high. The large muscle masses are, are contracting a lot. They're generating a lot of heat from metabolism And then the ability to dissipate that heat from the body to the surrounding environment. It's not just impaired by the environment because it's hot and it's humid in many places, but also they're wearing a lot of equipment as well. And that equipment serves as a barrier to to, to heat loss as well. Now, there are certain provisions that have been introduced over the last 20 years or so, particularly since the death of Corey and the excellent work that KSI have done and and others, where um, now for the first few days of a training camp, um, the amount of equipment that the players wear is reduced. And it's this idea that they're giving the players a, a progressive ability to adapt to the environment before they don full protective equipment and uh, therefore are exposed to greater levels of stress. So this notion of, of, of generating some kind of acclimatisation response to that. But it's it, I think it's pretty fair to say that pretty much every year there's there are some tragic cases where um, you know, a high school football player or a college football player will end up dying of heat stroke. And, and it's really because of this confluence of, of factors where you've got
0: mm.
1: highly motivated, very fit people, but um, because of the activities that are engaging in the environment they're in, culturally the environment in, the, in, the thermally the environment they're in, plus right. the nature of the activities they're doing really places them at quite a high risk.
0: I'm so glad you brought up children because this wouldn't be a podcast that I'm on unless we were talking about children in some way. So I have three. Um, do you have children?
1: Uh, I do. I have a, uh, a, a two-year-old daughter who is, um, oh. uh, yes, uh, a handful, but she's a lot of fun. Yeah.
0: I have a two-year-old daughter, and then also <laughs> she, she's our COVID COVID baby, and then a 11-year-old and an 8-year-old. Yeah. And I always think about them during this time because it is, like you said, sports season starting up, and kids just in general, you have to remind them so often to do basic things like drink water or, you know, get out of the sun or and things like that. So what should we be advising our, you know, schools of or our teachers to, to watch out for when our kids are Because we want them out there. We want them playing. I don't want to be the mom who's like, no, no recess. So, so what should we be saying?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's then we, t- if we take it back to the, the reason that people are, uh, different people are vulnerable to extreme heat. You know? uh, there's that physiological component, then there's the behavioral component. I think the, the, the jury's still pretty much out on whether children are actually at a greater physiological vulnerability. In fact, I would say we, we have a, a large study that's funded by the National Health and Medical Research Council here in Australia that we're doing it at, at the University of Sydney right now, where we're really trying to get a conclusive answer to the question of whether children of different ages are actually at greater risk of overheating due to thermoregulatory impairments. That's been a, a, a long-held assumption for quite a while um uh, there's been some uh, uh rowing back of, of 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 some of the perspectives on that relatively recently but there still hasn't been any conclusive evidence and people like to talk about morphology as well high surface area to mass ratio but the the the, the chances are if you, if you do the modeling you do the physics it is probably not a, a massive issue I think the, the biggest okay. is the. Is the I
0: like that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. okay.
1: Behavioral component that you're describing there. So, so, um, you know, it's this idea of uh, uh, as we age, we become a bit more aware of, of 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 things that are going on. We think, oh, it might be a good idea to seek heat to seek shade right now. Um, I might want to slow down, etc., um, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Those behavioral ad- 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 adaptations in in children. I think uh, I would propose are probably uh, blunted a little bit um, just through their, their, their exuberance for life and uh, <laughs> their, their lack of You're experience, so nice. <laughs> their lack of experience of dealing with these type of hazards in our, in our environment. So, um, so I think uh, I, I would, I would probably say that it would make um, uh, 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 quite a lot of sense from a protective perspective is just to try to remind them of, of the things that they should be thinking of, that they should be doing, and also providing them with, with the resources that they provide adequate shade. Um, you know, if, if they're having, um, if, if they've got you know, a sports match or something like that, if there's an opportunity to reschedule it for a slightly cooler time of the day, or even a time of the day where the sun isn't, the, the radiation from the sun isn't, isn't as strong because that's a, that's a huge component. Um, there are mm-hmm. things like that we can do that can keep them uh, much safer. Uh, from a from a heat stress perspective, uh while um, not impairing their ability to do what they want to do. And it stops right. us from doing the bad parts there- as well.
0: There's something that we talked about before where you, 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 I don't know if you've coined the term, but you use the term self dousing. And after I talk to you about it, I mean, that's the thing my kids love to do. That is the thing yep. that they will do. So can you talk about self dousing and, and where that fits in as a strategy? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Keeping... Cool. I, I'm glad that you, you brought that up. So, um, but I'll, I'll just take take it back to when we were talking about different strategies that the most vulnerable can use, and we said we were talking about increasing airflow with devices like fans, and there is a there's a there's a limit at which those devices are are helpful, and above that limit they can end up being being detrimental. And the question is, well, what can we do when we exceed those limits? What what else is left? And what we've shown through um, lab studies that we've done here at the University of Sydney. So just to so your your your, your listeners. Um, uh, can get a picture of what we do here. So we have, much like m- many physiologists, we have a climate chamber. It's a, it's a state-of-the-art built facility where we have the capacity to simulate any kind of condition that we really want from, from a th- perspective of a thermal environment. So we can uh, sim- sim- we can create a certain temperature. We can couple that with a certain humidity. We can even add the effects of solar radiation uh, to simulate these kind of outdoor environments very carefully. And then we can then systematically assess the way in which different strategies Reduce cardiovascular strain because we measure it. Thermal strain because we measure core temperature. Rate of dehydration. um, uh, We can measure bloods and all this kind of thing. So we can have a very detailed way of understanding how those um, the the impact, the physiological impacts of those different strategies. And one of the things that works uniformly in hot, dry environments, warm, humid environments is this idea of self-dousing. So um, I don't think we did coin the term, but I'll be happy to take it if um, <laughs> but I'm sure I, 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 I'm sure somebody else thought, thought, thought of it. first. Um, but basically, it's this idea of taking water. And of course, you want to drink, drink, drink it for maintaining hydration. But another thing that you can do that's really effective is that you can pour it over yourself. So if you place the water over your skin and a lot of it will drip off the body, but it gives you, it does the same thing as sweating effectively. You're place you're artificially placing water on the skin surface which will then sub- subsequently have an opportunity to evaporate and then that will have an enormous cooling effect. plus it also reduces the necessity for you to produce sweat yourself, which incurs its own physiological strain as well. So um, we've done some we've done a couple of uh, papers where we've we've tested the, the intervention which uh, worked really well. We published a paper in JAMA in 2019. Um, which is a preliminary lab, lab study uh, where we assessed the efficacy of this self-dousing. And we showed that it would re- really effective at reducing cardiovascular strain and increasing thermal comfort um, as well. And we also did an- another study that we published in a journal called Temperature, where we um, did some calculations and said, okay, the question is, if you're an athlete and you're running around, um, you've got a certain amount of water. Should you drink or should you pour or should you do both? And uh, what we were trying to figure out was what proportion of the water would actually need to evaporate from the skin surface to have the same eff- cooling effect as drinking an ice slurry drink, which is regularly advocated as a way of keeping cool. And I think the amount that needed to evaporate was about 6% or something like that, such is the, the power of evaporation. The amount wow. of heat that we liberate through the evaporation of moisture from our skin surface is absolutely enormous you know, compared to conductive heat exchange if we were to drink a cold drink, and you, you lose heat to, to that, that fluid to warm it up to body temperature. You lose far more heat through this evaporation process. So it's a very effective way of of, of, um, of keeping cool.
0: Interesting. So if you had this cup of said cold ice slushy water, drink some of it and then pour the rest on your body? Is that... that
1: That's what we recommend, yeah. yeah. Unless you're chronically dehydrated, of course. But if you're not chronically de- de- dehydrated, Drink to thirst, um, especially if you you know you're going to get access to a bit more water further down the line, and then consider throw, throwing some of it over your head, and you know, and, and then and it doesn't have to be cold either. That's the that's the beauty of mm. evaporation is that so you do have some convective sorry conductive heat exchange that would warm water up, um, but the, the, the real bang for your buck that you get is the evaporation, so that's that phase change from from liquid to gas, and that carries with it an enormous amount of latent heat energy. Um, so if it's, if it's, if it's 20 degrees Celsius water, 30 degrees Celsius water, actually doesn't matter as long as you can, as long as that water can evaporate.
0: So tap water, you could put tap water on yourself.
1: Yeah. So actually that's a really good point. So in, um, a lot of the studies that we have done and, and are currently doing is that we want to make, we want to create the conditions that are relevant to, um, normal living circumstances, so often what we do is that when it comes to utilizing water is uh, we usually provide it at a temperature that you would expect to get out of a tap. So um, mm. instead of having to, you know, mix it with ice and all the rest of it, because that would require you to have access to ice and have access to electricity and, and the rest of it. So um, this is why we always use tap water, but the temperature won't really matter all that much. So
0: That's great. I mean, I will one of the other things that you talked to me about i i feel like this all this conversation happened just so that I could survive and maybe i could i should say my husband can survive us not having air conditioning because uh, temperatures are also i mean are, i think uh uh we're also hot in other ways, not just temperature-wise. We're more angry. Uh, we're more yeah. frustrated at home. Yeah. And so you can certainly notice how, um, how hard it is to kind of just live with this for a few days, you know, be- beyond which we, we were sort of comfortable with. But we realized we had a ceiling fan. And we had not turned. It was just decorative for so many years. <laughs> <laughs> then we were like, huh. <laughs> I think I remember this. (laughs) We need to turn that fan on. And it sort of changed our lives in terms of just being more comfortable, like you said. (laughs) That it's thermal comfort. It's not just the, the... what the thermometer says. I mean, the you know the thermostat says yeah. on your wall. Yeah. So,
1: um, well, I'm really, really pleased to hear that some of the um, some of our research findings <laughs> are proving useful, and uh, you're still alive. So uh, clearly, it works. Yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: uh, uh, so, uh, yeah. One, one thing um, I, I'd just like to kind of uh, visit here is um, this idea of coupling extra air air movements with air conditioning. So we we published a paper in Lancet Planetary Health in April of this year. And uh, what that study sought to do was try to um, quantify how adopting a series of fan-first strategies will impact the amount that we turn to air conditioning to maintain our thermal comfort, Uh, and also the electricity bills that are associated with it and the greenhouse gas emissions that are associated with it. So if we take the principle that the reason that we use air conditioning is to maintain our thermal comfort, and if we can then accept that if we move air, what we know from a a lot of thermal comfort literature, so I had the privilege of of working alongside my colleague, Professor Richard DeDeer, who's a world-leading expert in the area of thermal comfort, um, is that a lot of Richard's uh, research and his colleagues in his area have demonstrated that if you move air a little bit more, what we can do is, is it, you, it elevates the ambient temperature that you feel uncomfortably warm at. So if we accept that that's the driving force for the, the thermostat set point on our on our air conditioner, what this means is that if you move air indoors at different speeds, and we tested the effects of different speeds, um, and this, we, these are just simple settings on a ceiling fan or a pedestal fan, um, it enables you to, to adjust the set point of the thermostat of your air conditioning unit by about three to four degrees Celsius higher. So what this means is that your air conditioning throughout the course of the day, where it heats up and then cools down later on, over the course of the day, you'll turn your air conditioning unit on later. It will turn off earlier, and you will feel exactly the same because you're maintaining the same level of thermal comfort by augmenting heat loss through convection, as opposed to just um, changing the temperature difference between the air and the skin, which is what an air conditioning unit does. So when we looked at those, th- that scenario and we applied that scenario, and we used Australia as a case study and used a year's worth of high resolution data to figure out exactly how much of an effect it would make on the amount of electricity that's used for AC use in people's homes. And subsequently, what the reduction in greenhouse gas emissions were, we found that in terms of electricity use for AC cooling throughout the year, by moving air at a speed of about 0.8 meters per second with fans, which is uh, about a medium setting on your on your ceiling fan, so probably the speed that you had your your fan at, it reduced electricity use for cooling by 70 percent, 70. Wow! And um, that's. And taking into account the way in which that electricity is, gen- electricity is generated, it reduces the greenhouse gas emissions of the whole country by about 1%, which doesn't sound like much, but it's a 1% change of everything that everybody's doing, uh, which mm. is which is pretty substantial for something that is such a simple, adaptive strategy that people can use. So what we need to do next is really work with people to try to find out ways in which we can encourage people to adopt that behavior and then generate demonstrate that it can actually drastically reduce people's electricity bills for AC use, but also the the strain that is placed on electricity grids when um, when we have these peak extreme heat events uh, and we reduce the risk of things like brownouts and blackouts, etc.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that yeah, well, you have to kind of... Really get that that message needs to to get out. I think because we have so many office buildings and so many places where it's just there's a number on a thermostat, and that's what people. And you you've you told me this, which is that like, we're really just working on cooling the air rather than cooling ourselves and being comfortable in that in that space.
1: That's a great point. So and, and one that I think we should emphasize here on this call is that that's, um, the, that um the principle of air conditioning is that we are cooling the temperature of all of the air that envelops us and for the purpose of cooling the person ultimately what we're concerned about is a hot person or an uncomfortable person so we need to redouble our efforts of focus and there's lots of people doing work in this area obviously not just us but um focusing on finding ways in which we can modify the thermal status of the individual without thinking that we have to change the entire environment and, um, and and that's where we can really drill down into far more sustainable ways of doing it, and also individualized ways as well. Is is if you know in that office building, you've got that thermostat set at you know sixty eight degrees Fahrenheit or something like that. Half of people too hot, the other half are too cold. Um, people are putting on scarves and, and, and woolly hats. Uh, <laughs> other people are uh, 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 take, taking off clothing, and um, no one <laughs> is really all that. Well, very few people are actually all that satisfied with that environment so not only would we be able to do mo- find more sustainable ways probably more effective ways of keeping people comfortable and and, and cool
0: i could talk to you literally for like hours but I, I don't want to take up even more of your time but i am this has just been such a great conversation i have two more questions for you if sure. you're if you're game yeah of course yeah. Um, One, I want to talk more about this climate chamber because I am fascinated. Can I come? And secondly, like, what is it that somebody's walking into? Are you walking into a room? Are you? I I don't even know what I'm envisioning. Right. Okay.
1: So, um, well, uh, anybody who's interested can visit our our website, the Heat and Health Research Incubator at the University of Sydney. Um, We have some some videos of of some studies that we're doing there. One 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 uh, in particular where. We're actually simulating the working environment of a ready-made garment factory in Bangladesh in our chamber in Sydney and exposing participants to these conditions, recreating the work conditions and trying to identify which sustainable cooling strategies are most effective. But you can kind of see the, 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 the setup there, but I'll describe it for you now. So um, and I, one thing I should um, also add is that while our climate chamber is a, is a, um, uh, a custom built um, uh, facility, and it's all really, really a medical facility, um, which was based on the specifications that I was able to provide. Um, there are, there's a it's, a, it's an entire sub-discipline thermal physiology. And there's a number of thermal physiologists uh, across the world that do this type of research. And we all have, to a greater or lesser extent, a um, access to similar uh, facilities such as this. So um, a climate chamber is, um, so our climate chamber is a, is a room. Um, it's a sealed room with windows and, and things like that. So you can get out and in, um, uh, it's three meters high and the floor space is four meters by five meters. And, um, what we can do, so you, you walk in, it's like, it's like walking into a big, um, uh, fridge maybe is probably the best example, but we typically make it warm. And then, uh, all of the, um, uh, the machinery that, uh, conditions the temperature and the humidity and, uh, and the wind Um, is above the ceiling and then at each end there is a um, uh, a, an air gap of about 75 centimeters wide on each end and there are fenestrated walls we we condition that air then it comes through that fenestrated wall and then it keeps it relatively laminar we have very good control over the the, the conditions so as you're walking in you'd be it'd be like being in a big room with um, with predominantly metal walls Um, and uh, what we do in those in in, in that chamber, is that a lot of the work we, we do is we focus on simulating heat waves of the past based on weather data and saying, okay, mm. so one of the ones that we really focus on is this Chicago heat wave of 1995, which was responsible for hundreds of heat related deaths. And we say, okay, if we have a, a replay of those conditions, what type of sustainable cooling strategies could the most vulnerable use to most effectively reduce their core temperature. So we measure their core temperature in a variety of different ways, reduce the cardiovascular strain that they might experience. Um, a lot of the studies that we we, we, we conduct, we do with um, clinical populations. So um, we don't just expose young, healthy people to these conditions. We um, recruit people with cardiovascular disease, for example, people on different types of prescription medication. So we really understand in a systematic way the role of these different conditions and how they alter what our advice would should be to people who are exposed to these types of conditions in, in, in the real world. Um, wow. And that enables us really to, 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 to identify what works and, and what doesn't work. Um, so that's really kind of the, the principle of, of, of the climate chamber. One of the things that we're also really quite excited about is that we have an opportunity to deal, to, to work with, collaborate with people in environmental science. So I'm a physiologist. So um, I don't really have much of an idea of climate modeling and things like that, but uh, there are experts that that, that specialize in that, and they can predict what the heat waves of the future might look like according to different Mm. carbon emission pathways. One of the real challenges for people right now is to understand what the impacts of future warming is actually going to be. We have these heat waves and it's all very uncomfortable and a bit distressing sometimes, but a lot of people are kind of think, ah, oh, you know, one or two degrees Celsius increasing global temperatures. What, what is that really going to do? But what we know is that the, the health impacts are gonna be predominantly concentrated from a heat perspective anyway, in these heat, extreme heat events. And the extreme heat events are gonna become more frequent, they become more intense, and they're gonna last longer. And what we can do is we can simulate at least the intensity of those future heat waves. We can take Mm. now, expose people to those different versions of the future and actually show physiologically what it's going to do to them, what it's going to do to their capacity to perform a a simple work task that we take for granted now, um, their ability to to play sport, the ability to even survive. And then we can actually provide data now to show, look, this is what the future is going to look like from a physiological perspective. And I think that could be quite powerful to try to really persuade people what are the consequences of our actions now may have in, you know, for 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 our children when they when when they're your father's age, for example, um, you know, what is that what is that going to look like for them? And I think that's that's really important. I'm so excited. Yeah, I. That's
0: a that's amazing. I mean, so we know that Europe is burning, millions of Americans are under heat advisories or and have been over the past several weeks. India, the Indian subcontinent, um, suffered through it for over a month. China, yeah. um, millions more there are, are affected right now. Are you shocked? Are you sort of, is this surprising to you in the sense that this is happening globally already, or is this just sort of what we should have anticipated?
1: I mean it's certainly alarming isn't it? Um, uh, but I think what it demonstrates is the the urgency with which we have to act from a mitigation perspective, so thinking about what we need to do now to 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 stop this runaway train getting completely out of control and then the second component is what do we need to do to adapt to ensure that the legacy of human activity to date, we know that's going to inevitably result in a certain um, scenario moving forward for at least the next 30, 40 years from a heat wave, perspective of heat waves and not just hot weather. And we know that's going to have devastating health impacts, particularly on the most vulnerable. The question is, what adaptive strategies can we provide to ensure that we can adapt to that warmer future uh, using the information and the tools that we have to hand one of the things that's really concerned me uh, and, and it, it alarms me is the quality of information that we are, we are giving the general public in terms of what type of strategies they should be using to protect themselves, particularly, particularly the most vulnerable, against extreme heat. A lot of it is still based on conventional wisdom, um, hearsay, uh, and there are, there's, there's um, growing... Evidence, particularly from the from the thermal physiological community, demonstrating how things do and do not work, and I think translating that information into changed public health guidance is is an absolute priority. And this was the focus of one of the um, papers that um, we published as part of the Heat and Health Lancet series last year. The second paper, reducing the health effects of of extreme heat and hot weather, which I had the privilege of, of leading, in, and associated with that with that. Um, uh, with that paper it were a series of infographics that the Lancet generated, we've got this one infographic that summarizes the eight things that you can do that are currently, that, that, are, that are based on the best scientific evidence that's available right now. And using that and, and, and promoting that as the evidence through which we should be advising what people should be doing, I think would make a lot of sense because that is actually based on the scientific evidence. Um, but a lot of what we're telling people at the moment and through various avenues doesn't seem to be um, informed at least by the latest scientific evidence, and in some cases, it's not—it's not informed by any evidence whatsoever.
0: Well, that's—I I think that's great. So we will make sure that we link to the that infographic in our show notes, and oh, that from our end, we're doing as much as we can to to get that message out there. Because you're right, we need to know what to do now. Um, and I really feel so lucky to have been able to talk to you not once but twice um, in a short period of time. So I really so appreciate your time.
1: My, my pleasure. Thanks so much for uh, having me on.
0: Of course, anything else that um, we will certainly talk and show and share that infographic. Anything else that you think that I should have asked you that I didn't?
1: Do you know, there's one thing that we, that we haven't touched on, which I think is worthwhile commenting on is... Um, There is a a preoccupation with temperature Um, and we know from the epidemiological literature is that that seems to have the highest associate or strongest association with negative health outcomes. But what we do know is that there are actually six components that feed into heat stress risk at the individual level. Ambient temperature, which is of course measured in the shade. That's an important thing for people to keep in mind. If you're out Mm -hmm. in the sun, then in the middle of the summer. Black globe temperature, which is takes into account the direct solar radiation and reflected solar radiation that's in the environment, that can be between 10 and even 15 degrees Celsius higher than ambient temperature. There's humidity, which we've touched on as well, and the importance of that, because it impacts the ability of sweat to evaporate from the skin surface. Um, and then also um, how much wind or air movement there is in the environment. So there's four environmental conditions that determine heat stress risk, not just temperature, but thermal radiation, so cloud cover effectively, um, the humidity, and also how much wind is in the environment. And then there's two personal parameters that we can modify at the personal level to, to uh, in some cases, um, to affect that overall heat stress risk. That's what we're doing and what we're wearing. Um, and there are certain scenarios whereby the level of activity is dictated by our job or the sport that we're playing or, or whatever it may be. Likewise, the, the clothing that we're wearing. Um, but those are the six components that that, that, are, that really combine to determine heat stress risk. And I think that's really important when it comes to people evaluating their own risk um, at an individual level. It's not just thinking about what the temperature is, but thinking about, OK, well, yeah. what is the humidity today? Um, is, is it clear or is it cloudy? Is it um, uh, is it windy or is it still? And uh, what am I doing today? What type of activities am I engaging in? And uh, what kind of clothing do I have to wear, or what can I, you know, what what do I need to wear? Or how much can I reduce that from the perspective of of the overall heat stress risk?
0: Uh, that's really great information. I think that sometimes as doctors we also tell a lot of people, you know, listen to your body, let your body guide you, which in some ways is is. I think helpful information, even in this situation. But I think from this conversation, what we have, what we can say is that sometimes you might not even recognize things because it, it catches up to you that you, you know, you're you're doing things or you're wearing things, um, you're in direct sunlight and you, you feel fine one minute and, and things can change so, so quickly.
1: Actually, but that's, I'll just finish off with just an extra point just to, to add to that. Is um, the way in which we perceive our thermal status is predominantly through thermoreceptors that are in our skin. So, our, if our skin's warmer, our skin's cool, then we perceive that it's, it's warmer or, 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 or cold and we take behavioral action. But if we think about some of those pathways through which we get sick, particularly the, the heat stroke pathway, a lot of that is associated with how hot our core, our body core is. And we don't really sense that all that much. Mm. So we can, it's quite, it's quite easy to, to almost trick yourself into thinking you're cooler than you actually are inside. And it's how hot you are inside that often matters. Um, so that's another thing just for people to, to keep in mind a little bit.
0: So the biggest takeaways for me, we know now that if things stay the same, we're gonna experience more intense and more frequent heat waves in the years to come. We're already seeing that right now. It's gonna be critical for us to figure out ways to stay cool and safe, but do it sustainably, without causing more greenhouse gases, which just make the problem of climate change even worse. So appreciate Dr. Ali J's time and all the work he's doing to simulate these heatwave conditions and figure out what effects it has on our bodies as we age, as we take certain medications under all sorts of different conditions so that we can figure out the best ways to stay safe.